Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue our series on American history from 1877 to the present, or the second half of U.S. history. This is the 11th podcast in this series. In podcast number 10, we looked at the lines of work that were available to the courageous entrepreneurial types of Americans that worked their way from the eastern half of the United States through the Mississippi River Valley out west to try to make a different or a new life for themselves. We looked into the mining industry in the Rocky Mountains and the risks that came with that and how few actually made any money in it at all. We then looked and got away from the mountains themselves out to the grasslands to take a little bit of an extensive view on what became known as the cow hand or more popularized in Hollywood as the cowboy, but what that relatively short duration of their time, what it really was in terms of a time when many, many people were working as cowhands. As I said, it only lasted about 20 years. But we looked at what drew them there, which then begs the question where we ended our 10th podcast, why was the life of the cowboy and cowgirl so short-lived? That answer comes as we begin now at our 11th podcast in our second half of American history. So here we're going to look at those last couple of forms of lines of work for the courageous who are willing to try to make a name for themselves and a lifestyle west of the Mississippi River. On those, out in those large grasslands were the plantation owners. But what ultimately would outdo or do under the, bring the end of the cow hand era was ironically enough, an extremely light, thin material but that was also deadly to the cowhand industry and to the buffalo, cattle, and bison themselves. Because nothing ruined a crop or the Transcontinental Railroad more than a herd of buffalo or cattle walking across, much less stampeding through. For the plantation owners, trying to make their way by becoming eventually the breadbasket of the world, a set of cowhands trying to work their livestock to the Transcontinental Railroad depots, if they lost control of their herds and they started in a stampede, no amount of crops was going to stop those raging animals until ultimately exhaustion would slow them down and eventually stop them. But for a plantation owner, that crop could mean their livelihood for the year was just trampled upon. The railroad also could be undone by a a herd of buffalo. On the surface, you might say, my gosh, I I can understand why, uh, how buffalo could ruin or cattle could ruin a crop. Uh, Stalks of corn even as high as, as five, six feet 
Sure, you can see how that could be mowed down by cattle, but how could they possibly ruin railroad tracks? The fact of the matter is they were able to do so, unfortunately, with quite efficient frequency. The reason being is that the railroads themselves, the actual rails, no, that wasn't going to cause any problems. There's no amount of cattle, no matter how heavy they are, that's going to hurt those massive solid steel rails. But what keeps those steel rails in one place is the wooden railroad ties down below. And that's ultimately what and how the railroads themselves could be ruined by a set of cattle. A herd of raging buffalo or cattle could make those railroad ties and turn them into small pieces of firewood, if not toothpicks, if given the opportunity. So because they could so easily ruin the railroad tracks themselves, much less plantation owners, there needed to be a way, a fast and efficient way to keep these cattle off of the lands and off of the railroads. And that answer came by an invention by the name of Samuel Glidden, who took the idea of simply taking a piece of wire and tying steel knots in it that we eventually call barbed wire. Nothing ruined a crop or railroads like buffalo and cattle, but that invention of barbed wire saved the plantations, saved the railroad, but also ended the cowhand era. To say that America had an insatiable appetite for barbed wire is an understatement, for by the year 1900, just the western states alone were installing enough barbed wire to circle the globe no less than 25 times. So let's take a jaunt inside those barbed wire sections on the farms and plantations in the western half of the United States. What drew poor, in some cases, bankrupt Americans West was the Homestead Act that was passed immediately following the conclusion of the American Civil War. There were two parts to the Homestead Act. The first part gave newly freed African Americans 40 acres of land in the South. The second half of the Homestead Act gave a person 160 acres for a $10 filing fee and a promise to work the land for no less than 60 months or of course five years. So people were going out in droves for this minor dollar amount, which $10 and then of course is still a, a decent amount of money, but for that filing fee and a promise to stay there for five years, that was willing to take the risk of whatever life would bring in the Western states. But as Americans started to get settled, on their 160 acres, it never dawned on American settlers why only field grass grew in so many areas and why many areas had an, abs an absence of Native Americans to the point in some cases they were never seen. The reason being is because the natives who had been here since the last ice age knew that turning up too many acres of soil at one time could make it difficult for them to continue to live on the land. 
The reason being is that pests were a common plight, especially the locusts. And when all of that land is turned into growing something besides grass, you end up feeding the insect and pest population. Following that Homestead Act, within eight years, Americans were digging up thousands of square acres of loose soil to the point that by the early 1870s, pests were becoming far more common, especially the locust. In the year 1870 alone, for example, witnessed three trillion of them flying a half a mile thick, a hundred miles wide and a thousand miles long, they could wipe out crops the size of Colorado effectively. They flew so thick at some, time, at some points that the sun was even blocked from the land wherever they flew. And there seemed to be no way around them. Did I mention cicadas, grasshoppers, ladybugs, and how many other countless pests that now with all this new vegetation that the Native Americans were warning, warning the immigrating coming Americans not to plant, not to turn over too much soil. The pests, it would turn out, would be the least of America's problems going forward. You might say, wait a minute, how bad, how bad, how much worse can it be if pests could wipe out an entire crop? Absolutely they could. But again, that's going to be nothing compared to the hell that the West is going to become by the 1930s. Hint, hint. The settlers also found out why the west of the Mississippi River, or that part of the United States, why it would eventually be called Tornado Alley. Remember that within terms of the world's tornadoes, 85% happen in the United States, and a vast majority of that 85% happens east of the Rocky Mountains and west of the Mississippi River. It's not that they haven't and don't occur in many other places and states, of course, but they're the exception to the rule. But out west, it seemed to be the rule. Remember again that when it comes to a tornado, as deadly as the storm is, the speed was just as deadly as the storm itself. Unlike hurricanes that can move with predictable speed and in predictable directions, and because they're so slow, if they change direction, again, we can plan accordingly. That will never be the case with the tornadoes that eventually make up the area called Tornado Alley. With the speed, you add that to the already horrifically high winds to the point that nothing can remain in its path if the tornado doesn't wish to leave it. What I mean by that is for reasons that are still somewhat not clearly known by the meteorology com community in academia is why an F5 tornado can work through a given area, wipe out a massive brick and steel church, wipe out many brick homes, but leave a wooden outhouse practically untouched. How can it take a beam of wood and drive it right through a brick wall? How can it take a home, completely remove it off of its foundation in one piece, and then essentially make it explode? 
these are the types of horrific storms that the people moving west would ultimately witness. What we also didn't understand either is that, again, wind pressure is not the same as wind speed. Wind pressure is four times the square of the speed. So a 10 mile an hour wind is an increase of 400 pounds of pressure, something that we don't think twice about. But what about when it's winds of well over 100 miles an hour? Now that formula goes from uncomfortable to deadly. Within 10 years, between the pest and the plagues and the droughts, and in some cases, the overabundance of rains and the floods that will follow, between those massive dark clouds spawning these tornadoes, within 10 years, half of the population that moved out west would return to the east with stories that very few people would ever believe. Yet for those who had the wherewithal, and in some cases the luck, in some cases, majority of cases perhaps, the role of their God, America could finally feed itself as the great out west would become the breadbasket, not only of the United States, but in some cases the breadbasket of the world. So that, once again, is yet another area that we focused on and discussed in terms of lines of work that people moving out west to get out of the overcrowded eastern states would embark upon and those options that were available to them. But there was one other line of work that wasn't nearly as numerous as plantation owners and mine workers, but arguably is one of the most important jobs for budding Americans to embrace that could be found throughout the United States, not only on the West Coast, but the East Coast and all around the Great Lakes. And those, that would be the lighthouse keepers of America, protecting America's shores. Again, this is a line of work that you, as you'll listen, as you'll hear in just a moment, was no less dangerous and in some cases no less deadly than trying to work in the coal mines or trying to deal with routing a certain herd of buffalo in one direction. So first off, just to dispel the myth, is iconic an American fixture are our lighthouses photographed by photographers around the world. You can count me as one of their fans as the main floor half bath is what my kids call the lighthouse bathroom because of some of the pictures that I have, both in artist drawings as well as real pictures of America's lighthouses. There is a huge puzzle that my mom and dad did for me of lighthouses around the world that they glued together and then framed, not including, of course, the lighthouse pillows that we also have around the house. Lighthouses are a, an anomaly, though, in a lot of ways. We look at a lighthouse and the average person sees a welcoming sign, a beacon of hope. But in fact, the lighthouse, if you're a mariner, is the exact opposite. The lighthouse is not an invitation to come closer. The lighthouse is not to say, come on over here, this is safe harbor. It's the opposite. It's an indication that the shores right around the lighthouse are extremely dangerous and essentially to stay away. 
The lighthouses are also beacons of placement of where one is at along the coast. This is the reason why during the day when lighthouses don't shine their lights, as it would be pointless to, but that's the reason why the paint scheme or the coating, if you want to call it that, on our lighthouses are all different. It's not that you cannot have similar ones that are uh, lighthouses that are similar, but they're never going to be in the same state. If you look, for example, at the Outer Banks of North Carolina, if you were to Google this or with your search engine, you can do this simultaneously while I'm discussing this in this podcast. If you were to look up Cape Lookout Lighthouse, you'll see that that's on an island in the very, very southern regions of North Carolina's Outer Banks. That has that familiar diamond pattern. And as if you go up, and just typing in the lighthouses of North Carolina, you'll see all of them show up generally in one image. But if you look at them in order from south to north, you'll see that Cape Lookout Lighthouse with that, again, distinctive diamond pattern. Then you'll see Ocracoke Lighthouse, which is plain white in the shortest of North Carolina's uh, lighthouses. And then, arguably, the most photographed lighthouse in the world, none other than Cape Hatteras. Like Lookout, it's also black and white, but there's no way you could confuse the patterns. Lookout is that checkered or diamond pattern, whereas Cape Hatteras is the spiral pattern, kind of like an American barber's pole. Continuing your way north and about another 40 miles to the north, and you're going to see these distinctive black and white horizontal bands. Bodhi Lighthouse. Further north, you get away from the black and the white, and you see that deep crimson color of Currituck Lighthouse at the northern end of North Carolina's Outer Banks. Those patterns can tell a mariner where he or she is at in relation to their charts. At night, all of those lights have a different lighting pattern. They don't just have one particular beam of light and then goes away. Our lighthouses have a variety of different ways to demonstrate location. It can be blinking twice, followed by 45 minutes of no, 45 seconds of no light with another double blink. It can be a single blink of a light followed by 30 seconds of darkness. There's countless ways that the designers, the Coast Guard can design these lights in such a way that at night, if one's charts were questionable or the mariners, the shippers lost their charts or their technology went out, they could again look at the lighthouses along the shore and by the type of light indicate where they are at and then also where they should at least not go for safe harbor. This is part of the reason why the lighthouses have beams that in some cases can actually be projected on a clear night at over 20 miles, to the point that on the Outer Banks alone, although you can do this in other locations, where there is the traditional pattern of lighthouses, you can stand roughly 20 miles north of Cape Hatteras, see its beam, and then look to the other direction, and you'd be able to, the opposite direction to the north, and you'd be able to see Cape Bodie's light because they, they tend to overlap by a couple of miles so that the whole coast somewhere on a clear night 
a lighthouse is visible. So again, as I say, just to emphasize that they are not to bring ships into shore, but rather than to keep rather to keep them away. The smaller lighthouses that are built at the ends of piers that are inviting the, the, the ships in, those would have a red and a green light to them. They generally are very dull lights as they're only meant to be seen in, by in, in the immediate harbor. The green would mean to come in on this side, the red would be stay away as those would be ships going out in the opposite direction. But what about, as when I mentioned the sea, clearly anybody familiar with vacationing around the waterline of major oceans, even the Great Lakes of the United States, knows how common fog can set in, where even the brightest lights in the world are not going to be able to penetrate some deep fog. And that's where we get the, the invention or the idea of the foghorn. That would work in lieu of the lights during periods of intense fog. One might note by looking at just random pictures of lighthouses that some of them are unbelievably tall, while some are not much taller than the average American house or residence. The reason for this is the lighthouses were not building contests. They were not aesthetic contests to see who could build the tallest with the, with the neatest design or the most attractive lantern rooms. Rather, they were expenses. They were expensive to build. They were expensive to maintain. So they didn't want to build them any taller than they needed to be. From the very first one that George Washington sanctioned to be built in his administration, all the way up to the maintaining of the America's lighthouses in modern times. The lower the land, or the lower the land is relative to sea level, the taller the tower needs to be. So therefore, in the United States, if you were to look at a, the side of the East Coast, for example, down from Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, you see some of the tallest lighthouses in the United States, with not one, of, not one being any taller than Cape Hatteras. But if you notice, as you head further and further north up the eastern seaboard, what you would notice is that the lighthouses tend to get much shorter. And the reason being is because the land itself is rising significantly higher than the sea level that is adjacent to it. That's the reason why the lighthouses in many of the Great Lakes and the West Coast and around Maine, some of them are as short as one and a half stories. So if you go down to the eastern seaboard, again, the higher you go with Cape Hatteras clocking in at 198 and a half feet and weighing no less than 4,830 tons. Now, one might, a listener might beg the question, why and how possibly could I know how much Cape, Cape Hatteras Lighthouse weighs? Because we had to know the weight of it in order to do the unthinkable. When Cape Hatteras Lighthouse was originally built at the Hatteras area of Buxton, North Carolina and the Outer Banks, a beautiful place to vacation. How would I know? Because I can't remember how many times I've been there now. But it's a beautiful place to, in so many ways. But when Cape Hatteras was originally built, it was a couple of thousand feet away from the shoreline. The Outer Banks is 
a mass of land that is constantly shifting. It's constantly on the move, hence the term banks. The outer banks are sand banks, but banks that are high enough to be above sea level a vast majority of the time, century in and century out. But all of the banks do shift and move. And Cape Hatteras, as the 20th century wore on, started to eat in closer and closer to the base of Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, to the point that somebody standing on the railing on the outside of the lantern room could easily throw a rock into the Atlantic Ocean. That's too close, and the lighthouse was destined to collapse, if not fall over. Yet, despite the weight of 4,830 tons, that lighthouse was moved 2,900 feet further into the middle of the bank. And it is, an, it is a lighthouse, as so many of them are, that are still being used by the modern Coast Guard. So they, I said earlier how they can beam out 20 miles. How is that possible? What size bulb would actually be needed? Believe it or not, not that large of a bulb. Because of the reason being is because of the lens that's around it. A French engineer by the last name of Fresnel, that's spelled F-R-E-S-N-E-L, designed more or less a lens that would house the light bulb. And he created seven different sizes or orders of them, from the small clamshell to the massive beehive that weighs in at many thousands of pounds. And what those lenses do is they take the scattering light waves that comes out of any light bulb and it condenses it down to one solid beam in the very middle of the lens. And that's the reason why all of those light beams can then be put into one direction and then beamed outwards, which is the reason why it would blind you upon seeing it if you were too close and looked right into the lens. But along that line too, the lighthouse keepers and their families led just as lonely and dangerous life as those of the cowhands and the miners. And what's worse is when the weather turned bad on the plantations, they could go down to the tornado shelters. The miners would be impervious to the elements on the outside. But to the lighthouse keepers, when the bad storms began to rage, when the hurricanes started coming in, everybody in those, er in those areas needed to get out, and get out they did, except for the lighthouse keeper. Unless he wanted to loot his, his job or her job and eventually be tried in the court of law for dereliction of duty, they needed to be there more than at any other time when those horrible storms came in. Even when storms weren't raging, every day the lamp had to be put out and the curtains drawn and then the lamps relit that evening. The reason I say about the curtains drawn is because that Fresnel lens, if you can see what it can do to a small light bulb in terms of magnifying it in one particular area, can you imagine what would happen with the sun's light beams coming through the lens and then being projected out on the other side? which was witnessed more than once, and they truly could burn a sail like it wasn't there and cut a ship's wooden mast like it was a knife, hot knife going through butter, as they say. So with those lighthouses and the keepers, by the late 1980s, no lighthouse in America 
any longer needed a human lighthouse keeper as all of them would be running now by automated technology and still run by the United States Coast Guard. We also need less, or excuse me, less lighthouses than we've ever needed before, but that's not to say we don't need any of them. If any of my listeners are lighthouse fans and you'd love to see some of these lighthouses, please, when you are looking at vacations where they advertise lighthouses to be able to be seen, please know that rarely are you just going to drive up a side road, go to the dead end, and boom, there's the lighthouse right there. These lighthouses, most of them are extremely hard to find. And even when you're in the right location, it's even more difficult to actually get to them because you're not going to be using your car. It leaves a lot to the imagination. But for advertising purposes in the tourism industry, lighthouses attract a lot of visitors. But little do these visitors know just how difficult it is to actually see them. More often than not, it's easier, if even if you have to pay for it, to see the lighthouses from the water rather than trying to get to them over land. But if you are a diehard and want to see the lighthouses no matter what, to give yourself one destination to see more lighthouses than you could probably ever want to dream of seeing, don't go to any of the coasts of the United States. Rather, go to the interior of the country, to the state of Wisconsin, to that little pinky that sticks out into Lake Michigan called Door County. Door County, pronounced as it's spelled as it's pronounced, D-O-O-R, Door County, Wisconsin, has more lighthouses per square mile and per count and in its one county than any other county in the United States. It is there that I myself have seen quite a few of those lighthouses, and I cannot tell you which one was more impressive or which one in its own way is more beautiful because each of them are just so different and beautiful in their own way. So that ends our discussion now on what Westerners were doing and how Americans were trying to make the put food on the table in 1800s America. When we come back for our next podcast, we're going to go back to Washington, D.C. as we take a snapshot of what the United States looks like militarily and politically as we then head in to the 20th century. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.